The Hero's Journey podcast is filled with an abundance of spoilers. If you haven't read this week's book, I recommend you do so, as it will certainly help you follow along. Although, if you're only interested in hearing our take on this story, listen on. Hello, and welcome to A Hero's Journey, a podcast in which my two far smarter friends, Alex, and I'm Zach, attempt to convince me, your judge, Jack, and you, the listener, whether a story is a hero's journey. The hero's journey is Joseph Campbell's monomyth. It breaks down the most common recurring themes of our stories into a single template. The journey consists of three overarching parts, the departure, the initiation, and the return. The departure is where our hero is called to action and leaves their ordinary world behind them. The initiation, where our hero undergoes the trials and tribulations of their quest before ultimately achieving their goals. And finally, the return, where after having completed their quest, our hero must return to some semblance of normalcy. And welcome back as we finish our discussion of Paul now Madib's hero's journey. And picking up where we left off with Paul's transition into the leader of the Freeman Madib, we have Alex. Right, so we're going to finish our discussion on the initiation here. Um, we still have a ton of greater apotheosis and ultimate boon left. I think that we can start with apotheosis, though. This is where Paul is waking up from his coma after drinking the water of life, and he sees the now. Um, he sees that the guild is against him and realizing that they need the spice for transport, and he has control of it. I have a nice quote here that I think emphasizes this realization. It's, he who can destroy a thing has control of it, um, something that the Duke has told him before, and Paul realizes that he can destroy the spice. Uh, I think that the atonement with the creator comes when Paul is talking with the emperor, the guild, the reverend mother, really all of the imperial powers that control the planets. Um, and he comes to an understanding with him, with them, that he is going to be the new emperor, basically, and they all need to take a back seat. Um, and I think that that is the ultimate boon where Paul claims the throne and in this way can prevent the jihad or at least delay it. So if we're discussing your apotheosis first, it's his Campbell straight up says it's a point of greater understanding. Um, I, I have a hard time arguing against it mainly because Paul achieves this next level of essentially godhood when he wakes up from his coma. All the puzzle pieces kind of fit together. And he, he is resolved and ready to move on to the next part. So no problem there. Apotheosis, checkmark. Um, atonement with the creator, in which he's talking with all the other imperial powers. I don't think he necessarily achieves an understanding like you're trying to say. That would... <laughs> I, I think that's a very generous term. Because they show up. Well, he essentially forced... He shows up. He blows in, you know, with nukes. He uses nukes, first of all. Uh, it's a great way to start an understanding. He uses yes. nukes. 
rides a bunch of god-sized uh, worms straight into where they're hanging out, and then pretty much tells them that their whole world is uh, going to collapse, and if they don't like it, he can both kill them and get rid of their cocaine. And this is a great start to an understanding uh, in your terms. I think it's more of that'd be kind of like me on the playground and a bully comes up to me and starts beating me up and I don't fight back because him and I have an understanding that if I fight back, it's just going to get worse. Uh, uh, that That's an interesting way to look at this. Um, I heard the word that you have an understanding. <laughs> I, yeah, so, that's what I'm trying to, I'm trying to use that in a facetious way. Um, so I think we have a couple things to address here. Let's start with the nukes. Uh, Paul specifically uses the nukes after a storm has cleared out people from the wall. So he is intentionally not damaging people. That's heavily emphasized in the book that using nukes against people is forbidden. And Paul uses them in a kind of like subterfuge way um, to just blow up this wall without harming people. And um, I think that we have to consider the different possibilities here. We have one where Paul terrorizes the emperor and all of these people into giving him what he wants, which is becoming the emperor. Or we have Paul unleashing the freemen on the entire system and them killing everyone and forcing him to become the emperor that way. So the understanding there is this little humiliation and this little defeat versus slaughter of millions and millions of people. So to kind of balance that. Okay. I mean, I'm willing to accept it's it's certainly by far the lesser uh, evil, if we want to call it that, this embarrassment. But I don't think... I don't think the people who are involved in this situation view it as such because they don't have, like, the precognition powers. Maybe the guild, maybe. But he said several times that most of their avenues of, like, forethought into the future are just met by blankness because those are the scenarios in which he does destroy all of right. the spice, which I thought was pretty clever because it's like when you're dealing with these people who can't see into the future except when they have this. I, don't know, I just I thought that was clever. Um, I think if you want to take a very literal approach, these are the people who've created who he is. Um, I think that's like a very astute thing. Obviously, from the the point of the, of the Reverend Mother, um, now if we want to go back to something you said in the previous episode, the Reverend mother didn't create him or something, at least you alluded to because it was his mother that created him against the wishes of the, of the Reverend mother. So pulls, pulls away from that a little bit, but um, the situation that he currently finds himself is the product of the genetic mutation programs that the, that the Reverend mothers run as well as the situation that the Baron through, um, fed has uh has created fed's family and the emperor's family so the situation that they are in and who paul is 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 somewhat they're responsible for that in in more than some small part um but i don't know that i would necessarily call it atonement i would call it more of a a very tenuous truce that we don't quite see at least in this book the ramifications of the situation that he has choose chosen to create so um he does certainly interact with them and if that's the basis of what we want to call an atonement with the creator but i don't think anybody else on that side of the table is happy with the outcome 
No, they're definitely not happy with it. But I, in fact, one of them is dead. This is the best understanding that I could see happening. Okay. So. I agree that Paul has prevented jihad. I agree that he takes the throne. My only slight gripe with this ultimate boon is that is this what Paul and this is going to sound a little odd but is this what Paul actually wants if and and here's here's why I asked that question because yes he wants to prevent the jihad and he sees the throne as claiming the throne as being the only way to do that but if he didn't have this sense of responsibility for the actions that his family and those around him have created in which he's trying to prevent this jihad is the throne and the responsibility of it something that he desires or is it simply the means to a goal which is the preventing of the jihad he paul never says that he wants to be the emperor before this he he wants to prevent the jihad and he takes the means the only means that he has to do that so i think you have to understand what the goal of the quest is. Now, as we stated in the last episode, the goal of the quest is preventing that jihad. So whatever avenues Paul has to take to do that is what he wants to do. Okay. I, I, I agree with that. I just, I think it's an interesting point, especially for our listeners that this appears, this, this claiming of ultimate power seems in many ways to be a self-sacrifice more than it truly is a boon given to our hero. Um, yeah, this is a hard boon because Pa doesn't want half of the things that he needs to do to get it. And I think that's going to bring us to the end of our initiation here. And again, a bit like the departure, I think there might there's a point of contention that we reach with the temptress, but for the most part, Paul is hitting blow for blow the hero's journey. Leading into our return, where Paul, or Madib, will refuse his return back to normalcy, potentially be rescued by some external source, and eventually achieve a mastery of two worlds and the freedom to continue to live his life. And now I give you Alex. All right, so um, I'm going to mention the magic flight here first because this happens previous to these next steps. The magic flight is Paul and the other freemen riding on the worms through the storm to attack the emperor. Um, it's not an escape from danger, but it is an escape from the desert that they were in previous. I think that Paul's refusal of the return is his fight with Fjord Rautha. Uh, Paul is hanging on to this desert persona here. He's not going into this persona of the emperor. Uh, I think that the rescue from without is when Fenring decides not to kill Paul. When Paul easily sees that he could have, he's never seen this man in visions before because his power is almost equal to him. And he would have died and not been able to prevent the jihad like he does. I think crossing the return threshold is Paul laying out his plans for Gunnery, his mother, and all the other Atreides men. Um, he's stepping into this 
role as the Duke here. I think that Paul becomes a master of two worlds when he retains the freeman for himself while, while um, becoming the emperor. He says, what they receive will be dispersed by the Mahdib. He's retaining the freeman and that part of his life while becoming emperor here. And, and, and freedom to live, Paul promises Shani to be his concubine and to produce more children and produce no children with the empress. So he is living his life how he wants to, not necessarily by imperial dictate. Talk about the magic flight, not necessarily in your stereotypical spot. And one could even kind of argue that since A, it's not in the spot that it kind of should be. I know we do move around these points fairly frequently. I've always thought of the magic flight as something that kind of has to come after the ultimate boon because it's really got to rescue him from something. Um, yeah. So there just isn't much there yeah. after he gets ultimate boom. We kind of go bang, bang, bang through all the rest yeah, of the stuff. Yeah, it, it goes no real quick. So I know you're what you're trying to find. I don't really treat it as a magical flight, especially because if we look at the fact that one of his trials was learning to tame these creatures, him now using them as a mode of transportation is not kind of like something that's outside of his control that's happening to him. Um, so I, I'd say that's that's just not accurate for the hero's journey. It is a cool part of the scene. I just wouldn't call it the magical fight. That, I think that's fair. Um, yeah. Um, but as far as the refusal for the return, again, we're moving into something that I don't necessarily agree with. I see his fight with, I'm, I call him Fed Rafa. Um, again, we butcher these names. And But his fight with Fed Rafa is not a refusal of a return. It is literally a thing he has to do or else he cannot get the ultimate boon that he wants. It's not like after the boon, he's like, oh man, I don't know. It's He hasn't accomplished the boon yet and therefore he can't refuse to return to the world that he was living in. The, so, go ahead. I think you're right that Fuevrata has to die, but the refusal here is Paul fighting him versus having Gunnery fight him or any of his other lieutenants giving himself him. some risk. Yeah, he is he is taking on this Freeman philosophy of you have to fight and you have to be the one to defeat your enemy versus the imperial or even ducal thought line of my lieutenant will fight for me. I will appoint a champion. Interesting that you say that, although um, is the argument that Fed is the Emperor's champion or that Fed is his is acting in his own here? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I think it's a little bit of both, probably. The Emperor definitely wants Fed to kill Paul. Yeah, but it's but... not like he's appointed him. So that, that does slightly counteract the whole, the, in the other society, they don't fight their own battles because Fed is notorious for you know, fighting his own battles, although sometimes they're, they're not exactly uh, fair. Kind fights. of rigged. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's something that, you know, maybe makes him stand out, or it, if it doesn't make him stand out, then it, it kind of argues against your point. Um, I don't know if Fed's motivations necessarily have to matter as much compared to Paul. When we 
when we're kind of talking about this return in general, right, we are talking about him going, leaving, or not leaving behind, but transitioning from this back from the Maw Dib that he has become to Paul the Emperor. Emperor, Duke, all the titles that he should have had. And this is, I get Alex's argument that this is him trying to not necessarily, well, sorry, not, this is an argument for him trying to cling to who he wants to have, who he has become and who he would rather be rather than the person he feels he must be. If we're talking about the rescue from without, uh, this is a good point. I, when I was reading the book, I thought this was a particularly interesting scene about how we learned that, um, oh, um, Fenring, yeah, that's how we want to say it. Fenring, um, could have been, um, this, uh, perfect genetic form of the Reverend Mothers, and, but he fell short, and his kind of relationship with the Emperor is what maybe saved him from, from dying, but, I think it's a really neat scene because when I was reading the book, I had a hard time thinking, okay, what is rescuing Paul? What is, what is saving him? And I, I think you've chosen a good point. Uh, I don't really have much to say about it. Um, The crossing of the return threshold, you've talked about his plans for the people who were in his life where he talks about, you know, what they're going to receive and how he's going to allot his time and and the resources of the area. Um, he's certainly integrating what he's learned both as a leader and as a supercomputer and as a a religious figure. Um, I think there, my argument against returning to the threshold would argue for master of two worlds is the problem. So my argument (laughs) is that he's still too involved with his life as a Freeman. Um, and as such, you know, he's going to be keeping and having all his children with the Freeman. He's highly focused on what's going to happen to Arrakis, the world of Dune. Um, he's highly concerned about, you know, the fact that he kept him, his old, essentially, stand-in father alive instead of killing him. It, they all lead to saying, hey, I'm still extremely tied to this part of my adventure that is that I'm supposed to be returning from. Normally, when I think crossing of the return threshold for a hero's journey story it's a very delineated line it's i'm no longer part of that world i'm moving back to the world that i came from although because i'm a master of two worlds i am taking with me some magical powers or some experience but i think the part that kind of muddles this for me is that he's keeps he's essentially keeping one hand in both halves of his journey and makes it a difficult return threshold okay i see i see what you're saying like he's not stepping fully back into the world but like you have been arguing kind of for me i think that mastery of two worlds kind of requires that you keep a hand in that back world especially in this story where we're literally going between planets and there's this imperial spacefaring uh culture like it's going to be very hard for Paul to cross a return threshold and be a master of two worlds without this discussion. He's certainly a master of two worlds. And, you know, it's, it's hard to say that he's, that he's not because he owns the Freeman, both in ideology and in, you know, 
the structure of their hierarchy. And he is now the emperor of the outside world. So pretty hard to say he's a master of two worlds. I don't think he's fully returned. I think your argument for it has been okay. Um, and that it's hard to separate the two in this tale. Um, but I don't know then if any, and here we kind of get into our discussion of a hero's journey. Are we pigeonholing this to say, yes, he's a hero, or are we willing to say it doesn't fit the mold for the story, but that's okay because it doesn't have to. Finally, we get to freedom to live where we talk about how he's taking Shawnee as his concubine. He's only going to have children with her. And here I have a little bit of a problem because if he is truly the master of two worlds, which we've said that he is, and he can do what he wants, he should just make Shawnee his wife and keep the other girl as his concubine that he doesn't sleep with. Or just decide he can have more than one wife. You know, you know what I mean? Because if he's in charge of literally everything, I feel like she kind of got the short end of the straw. Yes, she's getting his love, his affection, and his children. But it, she's going to suffer from the same thing that his mom, Jessica, suffered for through her entire life that we talk that it goes about in quite a bit of detail. Um, and she does kind of get, Jessica does kind of get, she gets the last line of the book for some reason, but she gets this kind of her own little apotheosis self-realization where it's okay. I was his wife all along, but you know, Shawnee doesn't have that and she's going to have to take that journey herself. And I think it's kind of unfair to her. Can we pause for one second? Yeah. Uh, I'd like to read to our listeners what we have as the definition for freedom to live. In this step, mastery leads to freedom from the fear of death, which in turn leads to the freedom to live. This is sometimes referred to as living in the moment, neither anticipating the future nor regretting the past. Um, If we're sticking to that (laughs) definition, I don't believe Paul is ever capable of attaining the freedom to live, (laughs) as his entire thing is seeing the future. Okay, well, in this moment, Paul is living in this moment with Chani and saying to her, hey, I'm going to be like faithful to you and true to you. He's trying not to see the future. He's trying not to look into the past. In this moment, he's saying to only Chani, you are important to me. Okay, yeah, bullshit. Because in his supercomputer head, in his head, he's already gone, oh, I tell her I can be my wife. Oh, man, that causes all the noble houses to, to revolt. Or in his head, he's like, yeah, I don't love you anymore. And that causes him to poison his coffee when he wakes up. I mean, it's like... <laughs> um, yeah, I, I can see this in this instance because of who Paul is. This is a tough, tough point. But I, I think you are making some interesting points, Alex. And without having gone back to actually look at how we define the freedom to live right he is making what does seem like a in-the-moment choice to be true to the woman that he loves. And yet, as a person, Paul just really isn't compatible. This is to a surprising final score for this book of 14 out of 17 points hit. Uh, I'm not going to lie. For once, we are actually lower than expected, which I know, again, sounds ridiculous for 14 out of 17 points hit. But my expectation for Dune was go- was that it was going to be a 17 out of 17. Yeah. 
Or I guess sixteen out of seventeen. They're really the magical flight yeah. is just really hard to nail down for this one. If you've, if you've argued that he controls these things, he can't also experience the magic flight on him. But yeah, I think overall, uh, I found Dune to be an interesting premise, but not necessarily as engaging for me personally. Uh, though I think Paul, as a hero, asks some really interesting questions, partially through his main goal being that he already, as we've discussed before, already sees his way towards power and authority and normally, I mean, potentially revenge for his family, which would be the normal things that we think of as his ultimate boon. And yet his goal is the prevention of one of the methods that he would go about to attain this and i think it asks some real questions of sort of what it means for paul to be not just a hero according to the hero's journey but actually a hero as a what you and i would call a hero yeah i think paul doesn't really fit that classic mold of a hero but he fits this journey really well i think that was intentional by the author frank herbert he is putting a lot of mythology and religious you know emphasis on this book i think that really shows and i think it's super interesting um i really enjoy this book i'm sorry that jack didn't as much i think that the concept is interesting and i like this speculative future and the political Political maneuvering is also super interesting to me. Dune is a book. I used to work in a bookstore uh, in high school, a little independent bookstore. And it was a book that was often kind of in the sci-fi section with the cover facing out saying, if you haven't read it, read it. And I haven't read it up to this point. And there's a lot of things I really liked about it. I liked the world building. I really liked... um, his mixture of sci-fi and fantasy such that you felt there was still something you didn't quite understand, which I think is the hallmark of good fantasy, but yet he was doing it in a way that was certainly a scientific, you know, he's talking about DNA and genetics and all that. And I think my biggest problem with the book as a whole is although I really enjoyed Paul as a character, like the other guys have said, if you have a hero that is nearly omnipresent or uh, omniscious, um, he doesn't have as much of a hard time struggling through things. There was times in the book where I thought, even though this is supposed to be a hardship for Paul, even though he's not supposed to know what he's doing, crossing the desert. And even though he's not supposed to know how to interact with these people, the level of superiority that he had over the common man was to such an extent that even these trials didn't feel like they were particularly difficult for him. And the problem is, is that the book kind of fed into that because that's part of the mythos of the prophecies of the hero, because it even says like, he shall know how to tie up his boots. Like he ties up his bootstraps in a way that he just does it even though it's something only a veteran should know how to do if nobody's explained it to him. And the prophecy says, and he'll know how to do these things without you telling him. 
And, and so while I really enjoyed reading it, I think that the, that it's hard for any author to reconcile a hero that is extremely powerful with any amount of trials and tribulations. I think it did an okay job, but it's still a difficult task. I think part of that also comes from, again, in not in the extended world that's preceded Paul that we, we don't really see, right? He is the culmination of this ridiculously in-depth program where we do learn that he meets, matches all of this religious iconography to a T because that is how the, the religion was designed around making it who Paul would be not uh, right. Not, not an, it's not a, a shoehorn. Uh, f- well, it's a reverse shoehorn. Yeah. The pro right. He, the prophecies were created around Paul, even though he didn't exist yet. Not, which is weird because that sounds like what prophecy should be, but normally in they're not created. It's a manufactured prophecy, for lack of a better term, even though well, that makes zero sense. Yeah. It is. It is exactly a manufactured prophecy. It's a prophecy so any uh, Ben Gesserit witches who land there can manipulate themselves into surviving. Which basically. was honestly one of my favorite things of the whole book that yeah. they that they knew that there would be people of lower, let's call it social intelligence, who they could implant these this religion upon so that, and they could train their reverend mothers if they ended up somewhere to use that to her advantage. And she even acknowledges that there'd be slight variations from planet to planet. I think that's awesome. Um, it's a super interesting concept, at least. Yeah, and it would be really cool to see maybe, and maybe they have done it, I don't know, but I would be interested in seeing a short story about one that failed, like somebody who was very close to Paul and they didn't quite get the genetics right and he like started one of these journeys but it ends in failure because it wasn't quite right or the local religion had shifted too much. I think that would be interesting. And I also, I, I want the readers to understand, I think there's a close tie if you enjoy Star Wars. Not if you enjoy Star Trek. If you enjoy Star Trek, I think you might hate this book. But if you enjoy Star Wars and the amount of the force and this kind of unknown quantity that your normal people just can't understand, but there are those that can tap into it and do amazing things, then you might be more inclined to like Dune. Um, So... For fans of science fantasy, not science fiction. Yeah. Just a side note: when I was trying to find something for Magic Flight, um, it was a hard point to find. Like we talked about, I was looking online, and there are people who complain that Star Wars stole plot points from Dune. Interesting. Like George Lucas. So I, I think that's really funny that you brought that comparison up. Yeah, I, I, I just think it's, it's, yeah, like Jack said, it's, it's. Science fantasy, not science fiction. That could be on the cover. Yeah. Which is quite strange because they go, even though we talk about it as a fantasy element, all of Paul's precognitive abilities and physical mastery in universe is based on a scientific explanation rather than a mysticism. Yeah, they say there's DNA memory and the fact that he can calculate percentage chances of things occurring and that really his like visions of the future in my mind that's just his imagination making the computer processing something that we as a reader can relate to 
Yeah, they had supercomputers in the past. They kind of reference these yeah, intelligent. I forgot about but that. because they wiped out all artificial intelligence, they use people, the mintants are like predictive computers, basically. So we didn't dig into how much all of Paul's like decisions are not really that like he's trying to prevent the jihad, but he's just out for right he he sees this future related to his personal revenge and then just sticks by that for the rest of his life what do you mean what do you want him to do i'm just saying as like a noble hero what what it, outside of his family being personally betrayed what the hell is he actually upset about doing? or what do you mean doing he's trying like, to like, he knows that if he dies for, okay so if he had died before like if he died as a child before they went to arrakis no jihad if he died when they got to Arrakis, no jihad. Literally, as soon as they killed all his family and everything, and he gets thrown into the desert, and he has his first interactions with the Freeman, and even maybe even slightly before his first interactions with the Freeman, his interactions with Light Keys, because they told him to look out for the the, the Messiah, then yeah. the jihad was going to happen, whether he's alive or not. And so, the- well, except that he doesn't have to. Right, he can lead the Freeman and not propose that they go. Right, not generate this massive conflict what i'm saying is lead the freemen and lead them how they've always been led and and just kind of leave things the status quo i think the reason he can't do that and one of the reasons that he is better than fade fed rafa is that the moral code that his father instilled in him will not let the people he lead continue to be subjugated and by so he either has to take over the entire planet, which the Empire will not allow because they want supply to the spice. So then he has to go several steps higher and become the Emperor. I think it's going to bring us to a close on Paul's hero's journey in Dune. As always, I've been your judge, Jack. This is Alex. And this is Zach. Join us next time as we dig into Roland in The Gunslinger by Stephen King. Yay! Oh, thank you. Thanks for sticking around. We'd love to hear what you have to say about this week's show or get comments for the next one. Uh, Please follow us on Facebook or at Goodreads. Links are down in the show notes. Can't wait to hear what you have to say. Death is scary, kids. (laughs) I've not said the part where I hand it over to you, Alex. I am in control. (laughs)